Hello, this is Monica Reeds. I'm Georgina Godwin. Today, I'm speaking to Professor Jean Seaton, who's director of the Orwell Prize and Foundation. We'll examine her remit and the Orwell Daily, a new email subscription on Substack, sending readers daily excerpts of the classic writings of George Orwell. Jean Seaton, welcome to Monica Reads. Hello. Really lovely to have you here. Now, you're a professor in media history at the University of Westminster. Just unpack that a bit for me. So I've written a lot of history of... I wrote one volume of the official history of the BBC, which is called Pinkos and Traitors. So that doesn't mince its words. And I've written a lot about media policy and media history and the 1930s. And I suppose I'm part of the generation that invented thinking about the thing we call the media seriously and trying to get students to study it seriously. And although it's always treated with a kind of, you know, hostility, and I don't think necessarily the discipline's gone everywhere it should do, actually we live in a world that is completely made by the way in which we communicate, which at the moment feels kind of in a dangerous state. So I've always written about, really since I was quite young actually, I've written about... I think I've examined Britain through thinking about our media. So that's what a professor of media history does. As we know, Britain's utterly divided now. Do you think that is media-driven? Or are we just reflecting our times? That's a chicken-and-egg question. I think that if you go to America, the destruction in 1987, much wanted by the American media, of the fairness legislation. So up until then, the broadcast media had been required to be fair. And the media thought that they could have in that American way, more freedom to make money and freedom of speech. So the media weren't opposed to it. That led to the polarisation of American broadcasting. Newspapers have always been, you always kind of know when you're buying a newspaper, you're buying an insight into a party mind. Though the bit of newspapers and magazines that tells you the truth has been under pressure. I think that democracy depends, depends on two things, on common understanding of common problems. You can only get political solutions if there's some definition of what a common problem is. And I think it also depends on people putting together a relatively realistic view of the world. And the way in which... The social media have allowed you to only really consider views that are very similar to your own and the ways in which it is, I think, I think actually, I think it's, it's interbred, interbred with a kind of politics that has done best out of pushing people to the edges and not solving problems. Mm. And so I think there's a sort of miscegenation, actually, between the kind of information we have and the political system. And the political system needs to change, but for sure we need to find ways of agreeing on common definitions of problems. And one of the interesting things, actually, during COVID was that for all of the complications here, we had, in the end, quite low vaccine hesitancy rates. And I think that's because we still have a media space in which... It was very difficult to get what was happening right, but in which there was there was real opportunity to share reservations and anxieties about vaccination. But there was also there was also real 
space to share scientific fact. Mm. And I think we should be very grateful for that. Do you think that journalists have to be politically impartial? All journalism, if it's any good, starts with the identification of an injustice and wants to find it out or expose it. I mean, actually, quite recently, I was in a meeting with um, Jess Phillips, who's wonderful, lippy, Midlands Labour MP, who always reads out the names of women that have been murdered. And in my very difficult way, I think I pointed out that more young men were murdered than women, but that's, that's me being difficult. And she said very clearly that Parliament depended on journalism coming up with problems and identifying issues, because then legislators would take it into account. So... I happen to think impartiality is not about being in the middle. It's not about being weak. It's not about balance, though balance is a useful mechanism. Actually, it's about truth. I mean, at the end of um, 1984, well, somewhere at the end of 1984 is a problem, but, you know, Orwell says if 2 plus 2 equals 4, all else follows. And I think impartiality is deeply embedded in our scientific systems, about recognising you're wrong. Impartiality is about recognising you may have got it wrong. You may have misunderstood something. It's deeply embedded still, though more frailly, I think, probably in our civil service. So I don't think impartiality... I mean, there is obviously a room for campaigning journalists, but actually I think they're being impartial if they're campaigning. During the 1930s, an awful lot of left-wing people were terribly in favour of the Republican government in Spain, as was Orwell. But quite a lot of them, Claude Coburn, you know, great lefty hero, made up stuff that supported the communists. And that was, that was wrong. They weren't using their eyes. Mm. So I think, I think impartiality... I mean, you know, and none of us can manage to be impartial. It's trivial to say we all have viewpoints. We do. Scientists understand really, in a very sophisticated way, the way in which one influences things. But I think impartiality is about being open to being catastrophically, humiliatingly wrong. <laughs> Let's talk about Eric Blair. Yeah. Because, of course, as you say, you wrote this this history of the BBC and he's probably one of the f- most famous people that ever worked there in office, in room 101. As we know, his pen name, George Orwell. You run the Orwell Foundation. Tell us about it. So the Orwell Foundation was set up originally by a man called Sir Bernard Crick, who did lots of innovations around politics and wrote a wonderful book called Indefense Politics. He was also wonderfully absurd, but that's another matter. He wrote the biography of the first really important biography of Orwell, which came out for 1984. And he was trying to persuade Orwell's then widow... Sonia Brownell, to put money, as Orwell always did, into young writers. I mean, Orwell didn't really ever have very much money, but whenever he had it, he gave it away to writers in particular. And Sonia wouldn't agree to to it, so Bernard dedicated the not very considerable royalties of the book and went to people like Astor. So it was set up to try and find the journalism and the writing that, in a sense, exemplifies that Orwell tradition I took it over, actually, because I was a widow, actually. The genuine truth was I quite like parties, and there was a party every year. And I was a widow, and everybody thought Jean needs something to distract her. So, And Bernard was very old. So I took it over, and I've been able to grow it. And we do two things, one of which is we try and make people actually look at all well, read all well, 
not just exchange QAnon kind of absurdities about him. And we try and find, now we've got a journalism prize, a fiction prize, a non-fiction prize, a social evils prize, and we're about to launch a new one. We try and find the writing that in some sense exemplifies his kind of values. Who knows what he'd think politically now, but you do know he had integrity. You do know that he wasn't a pacifist, though he had originally been a pacifist. You do know that he writes with great clarity. He doesn't obscure things. And you do know that he managed to see through communism in a way as it was being elaborated in the Soviet Union with great against the left. So we try and find the great journalism and the great books. And we've, you know, there have been books like Raja Shahada, Palestinian Walks, which could come in because it was published in Britain because it couldn't find a publisher, obviously in Israel. So we've, that's what we try and do. And we have this great assembling judgment, but we also run a youth prize where we try and get lots of young people to think about difficult things all over the country in difficult places. And we run a lectures. So we do quite a lot on absolutely nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Who would you say, I know this is a difficult question, but does Orwell have a natural air in someone or some people writing today? I mean, oddly, the kind of people that come to mind are people like John Lanchester, who's both written great novels but also based on very real things like the financial crash. Or his climate, his recent climate book was excellent. Absolutely. So somebody like Neil Asherson, who I quite often disagree with, very old now, just been 90, an extraordinary reporter during the Cold War and goes on thinking. I mean, you know, Hilary Mantel, in her, particularly the rather awkward books about living in the early books, which were not very regarded, actually, before we get to the Wolf Hall ones, about living in Saudi Arabia, which was both extremely funny and a terrible indictment. I think he's scattered around. There's a tradition of longer essays, which you get in, I suppose, the New Yorker or the New York Review of Books, which take really serious topics like drugs and really explores them. I mean, I think there's a lot of great journalism going on, actually. The Bureau of Investigative Journalism here... You know, these are all people who pick up bits. When Orwell went to write The Road to Wickham Pier, you know, there were 900 letters he wrote asking things like mortality rates and and things. So he was a very scrupulous, careful reporter in Mm. that way. I quite recently read a book by Edward Dock. I can't remember what it's called. Great book about taking a father to a clinic to die. I've read, yes, it's a lovely book. And I thought there was such a sort of decency in it. Everybody's decent. They're all doing their best. So those kind of books in which there's great human decency. Absolutely. And I'm just going to jump in here and say, if you want to know more about either that Edward Dock's book or the John Lanchester book that we were discussing, (laughs) both of those appear in previous editions of Meet the Writers. Let's go back to Orwell. And the reason we're doing this interview is that you've launched a whole new initiative. Yes. Tell us about it. So next year, the beginning of next year, is the anniversary of the publication of Down and Out in London and Paris. We have actually previously dramatised Down and Out in London and Paris, in London and Paris, including the voices and testimony of homeless people, young homeless people now, in London and Paris. I've got grey hair. That is 
one reason. But we've also got a new prize, which is a prize about reporting and writing about homelessness. So we thought what we'd try and do was make people go back to Orwell. It was his first published book. It comes really out of experiences he probably had about five years earlier. It's the book he becomes Orwell on. Up until that moment, he's Eric Blair. He says he disguises the name Orwell's River very close to a bit of the countryside he liked a lot. George is George, maybe more British. He said at the time he disguised it because he didn't want to embarrass his parents, but he sticks to that name. I was very struck, actually. I just recently did some work on Una Marson, who was a wonderful Caribbean writer, extraordinarily audacious woman, who worked with Orwell in the BBC during the Second World War. It's a wonderful book by Delia Jarrett-McCauley on her, who really knows everything. I don't. I just picked it up from what Delia said, really, and a bit of BBC archive. And when Orwell writes to Una Marson, he's known as George. He doesn't say Eric. So there is something much more profound and fascinating that happens... He becomes a writer on this book and he changes his name. So we thought that if we cut it into bits and delivered it through Substack into people in daily chunks, I have to say that even in his first book, the bits fall beautifully. One of the things we found when we dramatised it is you can just read all well. I mean, of course he's learning to write. Everybody has to learn to write. He's learnt quite well by the time he's written his first book. Therefore, people would read it. And as we head to this terrible winter, which has not really begun to bore down on people yet, with what is, in my view, erroneously called the cost of living crisis, I mean, terrible inflation. You have to be my age to know how terrifying inflation is. A government who doesn't really understand how to manage it because they've got no memory. So things are going to get difficult Homelessness is probably going to go up. So we thought we would take people to it because, of course, the end of the book has got some policy suggestions Mm. and then just see if we can find a new audience for Orwell plus looking at some of the difficult bits. That's wonderful. So this is being pumped out, as you say, in bite-sized chunks. Yeah, you can go. It's on Substack. Go to Substack. It's free. The rest of Substack isn't. It'll come into your email box. Nice, handy-sized bits you can read on the way into work or at home. It doesn't take long. And it takes you through this rather extraordinary book. I mean, recent times are often described as Orwellian. <laughs> Is there advice and encouragement to be found in his writing for the current situation the world is in? I think the most encouragement is that you can't get anywhere without, in the end, dealing with what is really happening. And even at the end of his apparently, in some ways, most depressing book, which is 1984, which he wrote at the end of his writing life, frankly, while dying quite fast of TB, Actually, the end of it has got this extraordinary chapter, which it looks very technical, but it's about it's about the way in which this has been the book has been preserved as an archive document to preserve. So you know that language hasn't been killed, and there are lots of hopeful bits in it. There's all sorts of residual decency that people exercise under the most dire. So I think in that sense, and the sense that he's both very interested in the individual conscience the individual decency, really, 
And he also gives you a model of how, for instance, again in 1984, how you can, even a quite decent individual, can be wound into and feel passionately something really terrible, which is the two minutes hate. So the thing is, you can identify things, and then that, that's a prophylactic. Mm. He's not cheery, but he is prophylactic. <laughs> um, now, Animal Farm, I know, has made an enormous difference to so many people around the world. I'm Zimbabwean, and it became a book that was passed from hand to hand. Then it was recorded, it was played on public transport, it was moved around in whatever way possible, and I believe really did help to change the mindset of people in the country who suddenly saw that some animals were more equal than others. Yeah. Animal Farm's a really good example of, you know, he's not actually mean about the pony who likes to wear ribbons and who disappears. He actually quite likes her. And the cart horse, whose heart and soul dedicated to trying to make this thing called the revolution work, but is carted off to the knackers. And the horrible donkey, who's probably all well, sort of cynical donkey who kind of knows everything that's happening. So it's a picture. And I think that... Both 1994 and Animal Farm are fairy stories. They're they're phantoms. And that makes them very usable all over the world, really. And I'd always... I I had this very, very acute moment, actually, between Brexit and Trump, when, of course, 1984 topped the bestseller list in America. Extraordinary. And I realised that I had personally always read 1984 in, frankly, a slightly condescending way as a sort of, you know, these other regimes have these problems and it will remind me how important it is to hang on to proprieties and and then somewhere between Brexit and Trump I read it again and it felt extremely painfully present in in my life yeah yeah I mean do you think that there are still new things to discover from an author as celebrated as Orwell well if you read you read it with an open heart I mean, reading is a very, very peculiar... All the books you read, where do they go? What do they do? What do they make you? Well, what they make you, I suppose, is they bend you to new views of the world and to, I think, sympathy Mm. for people unlike you. And when you're 18 and you read a thing, that's one thing. And then when you're 40 and you've got a different experience... And when the world changes around you, I mean, I think that one test of something tremendous is that it's it's re-readable over your life and you get things out of it. But times change, so you go back to it. You get a different set of things out of it. Mm, mm. Reading's this intensely internal... Though I think one of the things we're trying to do with the um, Substack thing is get people to read together and, in fact... After Christmas, we're going to set up a quite fine three themes and try and curate, as it were, a reading group with people who really know about what's happening about homelessness, use Orwell as a compare and contrast, what did he get wrong, what's different from now, you know. And then, in fact, there's some quite interesting things about, you know, some things that we've got better, but he's, he's classically and classically Orwell. He never handles sex very well. All of the sex scenes are absolutely ghastly. (laughs) And his women aren't very good either. All of the women he knew in real life are kind of really interesting, really able. So there's a contradiction. Mm. 
I know. I mean, he continues to be a, a <laughs> huge fascination. I wonder if um, this works because readers are interested, more interested now in reading shorter segments. People just don't have the concentration for a full book. And that's why sending this out in mm. little bite-sized chunks absolutely works. You're talking to the wrong person. <laughs> you're, talking to, you're talking to a person. I mean, I think that's what we think. And we also think that it's not a tremendous book. There are all sorts of problems with it. So we've just put up a really good essay on All and the Jews by David Taylor, which came from his first biography. It's a really good examination of why it is that Orwell uses stereotypes. Well, it was the 1920s and 30s. But what does that reveal about a man who had many Jewish friends, most of his literary executors were, were Jews, who's always inspecting his own anti-Semitism and what that means and who thinks that Jew baiting. So we, we thought we'd, we, wanted to, we wanted to put some awkwardness, we wanted to put some grit. I never think that we're there to worship all well. But in, the, in that sense, I think we're slightly different from literary estates quite often because mm-hmm. in the spirit of all well, we have to biff him. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the short bits, I think it's the kind of book that goes quite well in short bits, actually, because it's very episodic. You know, he goes walking... He's in this hotel, he's in this pond, he's hungry. There are two dominant themes in it, which felt to me, rereading it, kind of, never would I have thought in my life that I would have thought that bad food, which has been an issue in British and developed world society for a long time, but I wouldn't have thought just hunger would be a potential issue again. So he's very, very good on hunger actually, when we're talking about free school lunches and free school breakfasts and that kind of thing. Down and Out's your first one. What are your plans? What more? Well, Down and Out's very associated with this new prize we're launching. The object of the prize is partly to see if we can't break the mould, the grip of Down and Out in London and Paris on writing about homelessness. It's really one of those books in which... Nearly everybody has to confront it when they start to write about it. So we want to see if we can find the new ways of writing about homelessness that breaks the grip of mm-hmm. Orwell. So that's very associated with that. And we're going to obviously try and find people who've got direct experience of homelessness, as Orwell did, but a more enduring, permanent experience, that kind of writing as well as reporting on. So that's, that's associated with that. What we will do next, I don't know... The books are in copyright in America, so we have to serialise them. So I think we will look at how this goes and look at how we can build a proper critical reading of the book. That's that's my aim, to make people think about the things, and but think about the writing. So we've got various plans, but I, I wouldn't know what we would do. We're terribly tiny. I mean, it's ridiculous that we're trying to do what we're trying to do. Well... All power to you. Uh, And people can sign up now for free at all.substack.com. Thank you. Jane Seaton, who is director of the Orwell Foundation and also the Orwell Prizes, thank you so much for speaking to me. You've been listening to Monocle Reads and thanks to the producer, Nora Hull. You can download this show and previous episodes from our website or app from SoundCloud, Mixcloud or iTunes. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.